traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. I'm very happy to present the second part of my interview with Tristan Hughes of History Hit TV and author of the forthcoming book, Alexander's Successors at War, The Perdiccas Years, with Pen and Sword Publishing. In the first part of the interview, we focused on revolts against Macedonian rule in Bactria and Sogdia up through the immediate aftermath of Alexander's death. In this part, we continue with a discussion of the subsequent period of Seleucid rule of Bactria, as well as the life and death of the Bactrian kingdom. We start off the conversation discussing how Seleucus, when he was forging his successor kingdom, would have approached Bactria and the eastern territories conquered by Alexander. Maybe in Seleucus's mind, you have still some infrastructure, you have some satrapies, you have some Macedonian troops, you have some kind of framework uh, for holding on to the region. You have maybe some agreements in place. You have, if you're Seleucus I, you have your wife, Apama, who's from the region. And you also know that, you know, Bactria is a, it's, it's considered a wealthy region. It's considered a important region. I guess let alone the fact that, you know, you being Seleucus had spent several years previously doing the hard work of trying to bring this region under your reign. So it seems like from some combination of all that and other factors, uh, Seleucus was fixated on uh, reclaiming Bactria, and, and he was able to do so. You know, apparently to my understanding, his son, who again is the is also the son of Apama, um, becomes essentially his viceroy in the region. Uh, he, you know, moves out there, uh, you know, issues coinage, he establishes cities, he controls the eastern satraps. So for a while you have Antiochus I keeping a good eye on the region, you know, directly. And then pretty soon mm-hmm. afterwards when he becomes king and then, you know, the, the his successor, they become so embroiled with events back in Syria, you know, the Syrian wars against the Ptolemies and in Anatolia, that they're not able to give Bactria the attention maybe they would like. And around the mid-3rd century BC, uh, a couple of the satraps of the region, the satrap of of Parthia, Andragoras, and the satrap of Bactria, named uh, Diodotus or Diodotus, uh, they both 
start charting a more independent path, essentially, mm-hmm. at, this, at this time. The, you know, the main figures are, again, Diodotus of Bactria, and then this, uh, this other figure, Arsaces um, of the Parthians. <laughs> and they both come on the scene, and things will never quite be the same again. So, Well, yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, first of all, going back to your point of, you know, like Seleucus and Apama and Antiochus being his viceroy in Bactria, what immediately uh, rings out, like the word which rings out when I heard that was continuity. Because during the Persian reign, like during the Persian Empire, the Communist Empire, uh, it being a common practice sometimes that, you know, a, a Persian king, his potential successor would first rule as viceroy, as governor of Bactria. Bessus, for instance, was seen as a successor to Darius III, at least for a time, and he was formerly the satrap of, of Bactria. And it's remarkable, like, this idea that, you know, the, the successor of Seleucus and, in part-time, his co-ruler, uh, Antiochus, was also very... There was this, this idea of continuity that he also became viceroy as Bactria, you know, it seems like as preparation for ruling. And and also, you know, with Seleucus and Amapama, he must have used that to his advantage because of the similarities between his marriage to Apama and Alexander the Great's marriage to Roxana. Definitely. There's a, there's a resonance there, and uh, yeah, and as you say, a continuity. And, and that's a really good point about the uh, Achaemenid Persians as well. You, you are right that the presumed successor to the Persian throne also in that era typically spent time as viceroy in, in, in Bactria first. So, yeah, it makes, makes good sense. So it's just another way that, you know, Alexander's empire and Seleucus's empire were successors to the Persian empire. Uh, 100%, you know, it shows the administration how much they actually borrowed from the Persians. Right. Um, you wanted to talk about Arsaces. Was it we were going to talk about Yeah, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about him. Well, he, he's an interesting fellow, isn't he? Um, so he's, he's, a mem- he's a member of that, that, that what, a, a group of tribes to the east of the Caspian Sea, just north of the region of Parthia, the, the Dahe. And he's, he's a, a chieftain of one of these tribes called the Pani tribe, which is the most powerful of the Dahe tribes. Uh, gathers this, this nomadic army of, you know, the famous uh, horse archers and all that. He invades Parthia, he overthrows Andragoras, and he takes Parthia for himself. And soon, I think he conquers Hurricania as well, the region to the south. Yeah, when Arsaces takes over Parthia from uh, from this Hellenic satrap Andragoras, he immediately is concerned because he finds himself uh, with potential trouble on both borders. He has a somewhat independent Hellenistic satrap, you know, Diodotus on one side, and he's got the Seleucids on the other. And then luckily for him, what happens is uh, Diodotus I uh, passes away, and his son, Diodotus II, uh, immediately proclaims himself king, and then also uh, he makes some sort of arrangement or peace treaty or something to that effect with Arsaces, so they you know don't have to worry about internecine war in the region, and they can kind of both work together when the Seleucids plan to come back and try to reclaim you know their lost satrapies. So. You know, one of the things in the podcast I've been doing lately is I, I wanted to cover the origins of uh, of the Parthians, 
And really, their history is so inextricably linked to the Bactrians that it was essentially impossible to talk about one without the other. They, they, they come up together. They, uh, you know, their, their conflicts and their uh, arrangements and, and periods of peace, you know, kind of define a lot of what happens in the region for for quite a while. I believe it's Seleucus II uh, tries to come out and, uh, you know, reclaim these two satrapies. Uh, he's driven off mainly by Arsaces and the Parthians. And one of the next things that happens in the area is there's this figure named uh, Euthydemus or Euthydemos, who is apparently a satrap of uh, Sogdia and Fregana, just to the north of Bactria. He apparently marries the sister of Diodotus II, who's, again, the current king of Bactria. And then around the mid-220s BC, Euthydemus uh, evidently uh, stages a coup. And so he uh, you know, overthrows and kills Diodotus II. And then essentially Euthydemus has gotten control of Fregana, Sogia, and now Bactria, which makes him, you know, puts him in a very strong position. Um, he may very well have been eyeing Parthia next for, you know, for further conquests. But what happens at the time is this, you know, the fates throw a curveball. This happens to be the time when there is a Seleucid king with both the means and opportunity to come and try to reclaim these territories. And that's Antiochus the Great. Yes. So, and I know that, um, you know, again, talking about your Battles of the Ancients website, I know one of the battles you uh, gave a great treatment to was the Battle of the Arius River um, between Antiochus III and, and Euthydemus. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Always, yeah, one of my favorites, definitely. Um, and it, it's, it's Mark, you said, Euthydemus, he, he does this, this, this groundbreaking thing, which he overthrows the Diodotid dynasty. Um, as you say, one of the you know his background before that is shrouded in legend. Apart, from, well, not legend, but we don't know much about it. Apart from that, he did come from uh, Magnesia uh, in Asia Minor on the uh, western coast of Asia Minor. But he was one of these Greek settlers who was attracted, you know, to come to Bactria, and then he obviously does he does very well under the Diodotids, and then he basically, well, he, he ends their bloodline. He kills Diodotus the uh, second. Reasons for that is quite unclear it may be and so i think it's quite likely that actually the alliance or the agreements with parthia actually angered a lot of hellenized nobles the people in the high positions of power there uh in dajatus's empire he angered a lot of them because basically they saw dajatus the second deciding with the barbarians against their hellenized uh allies but it may be right. a different case so, um but yeah wh- wh- whatever that is we don't really know and until then, Euthydemus is king. He uh, he succeeds Diodotus the second. Antiochus the third. He's had a very interesting first few years as king of the Seleucid Empire. He's inherited a kingdom as weak as it's ever been. 
uh, very weak, very divided. In the east, in Mesopotamia, like uh, eastern Zagros Mountains, you have a rebellious satrap called Molon uh, and his brother, who've, who've created a lot of resistance in the east. In the west, not so long after, his formerly allies, well, loyal general Achaeus, he rebels against him. And then in the south, you have the Ptolemies, who are just a general nuisance uh, <laughs> right. for Seleucids at this time. But Antiochus, he proves all the doubters wrong. He First of all, he crushes Molon and his revolt in the east. He regains control of places like Media and Persia and Mesopotamia. He then he does suffer a famous defeat at Raphia, probably the largest battle of the Hellenistic period. He suffers a defeat there. But he recuperates, he comes back, he defeats Achaeus in Asia Minor, he, reta- he regains that for the Seleucid Empire. By this time, I think by 212, 211 BC, he's basically solidified the Seleucid Empire. And his dream is to reforge the famous, the, the dominant hegemonic Seleucid Empire of his forefather Seleucus, right. Seleucus I, where Seleucus's empire stretched from the borders of India to Thrace and Macedonia in the west. Uh, so obviously one of the first targets which Antiochus needs to reconquer is Bactria and Parthia and the east. And so he gathers this huge army. According to ancient sources, it's about 100,000 to 120,000 men. More likely, it's between 50 and 70,000. But it's still right. a formidable army for his great eastern expedition. He gathers them, I think it's in Seleucia or in Babylon, in, in that area, Mesopotamia. And I think in 210, he starts heading east. Immediately, he's met with success. He defeats the new Persian, uh, the new Parthian king. I think it's Arsaces the second. Correct. Um, and he, he he defeats them. He takes a few of their strongholds like Tambrax and Syrinx, and he basically subdues the Parthians to his will pretty easily. The next stop is Bactria, and Euthydemus he knows that that Antiochus is coming. He's been solidifying his base. He's been king now for about thirteen years or so, and he gathers his own large formidable army and in this army included indian war elephants he probably had quite a lot of bactrian infantry uh light infantry mainly they're very they're uh, good at that but of course and of course he would have had some hellenized uh phalangites there but of course his main striking weapon that he uses for his advantage is the bactrian cavalry which is you know for hundreds of years been the region's best military units both as heavy cavalry and as light uh, missile cavalry and Euthydemos is able to gather a force of 10,000 <laughs> Bactrian cavalry it's amazing it's, yeah the, num- amazing. the numbers are even hard to conceptualize yeah oh uh, it is and, and, he, and this is his secret weapon he's more so than the elephants and he knows that Antiochus is coming and so he deploys his 10,000 cavalry ahead of his army and he orders them to hold uh, a ford of the Arius River on the borders of his kingdom uh, and prevent Antiochus from crossing whilst Euthydemos is still with his army, he's still getting there so he sends the cavalry ahead Antiochus, he hears about this, he hears about this huge cavalry force blocking his way into Bactria but he comes up with a cunning plan, his plan basically when he, I think he's two days march or one day's march from the from the crossing He's learned just before then that every night the Bactrian cavalry, they retreat from the river. They retreat a few a few miles east to a nearby town where they have their night quarters. And so Antiochus, he uses this to his advantage. When he's about a day's march away, 
He gathers his own cavalry and some of his light infantry and they march ahead of the rest of the great large Seleucid army and they march through the night and by daybreak most of this force, this task force of about 15,000 men has crossed the river including Antiochus himself and so the Bactrians return to the river the following morning to see Antiochus forming up with his uh, like his special corps on their side of the river right now wasting no time the Bactrians they also see this as an opportunity because some of Antiochus's cavalry they're still not formed up for battle they're still crossing and the Bactrians they realize that now they have a perfect opportunity to capture or kill the Seleucid king cut the head of the snake <laughs> right so they they charge they go charging straight in to the advanced Seleucid force and Antiochus sees this he sees most of his forces still forming up so he gathers his 2000 royal Agema his Agema his um his elite bodyguard and he charges the Bactrian cavalry he's vastly outnumbered but he knows if he can hold on for long enough that I'll give the rest of his t- cavalry time and infantry time to get across and then victory is within sight so he charges, Antiochus charges, it's a ferocious battle, first with spear, then with sword, and at the start it looks like he's pushing the Bactrians back, he pushes one wave back, but it's an endless tide of Bactrian cavalry, they keep charging in again and again and again, and Antiochus, he loses his horse from under him, he loses some teeth in the battle as well, as do many of his followers. It's it's amazing. I mean, that was a that was a little note that I came across when I was researching the battle, and, and we're very lucky, uh, you know, to have that Polybius gives us uh, some nice detail uh, on this. But yeah, the fact that you know during the course of the battle, uh, Antiochus basically got speared in the mouth, lost some of his teeth, is the way I read it, or maybe it was an arrow, mm-hmm. maybe it was something else, and did not, to as far as we can tell, did not let that slow him down in the slightest. No, it actually, and actually for its reputation, it does him a world of good. Because once again, it's this, this um, you know, trying to characterize yourself as an Alexander kind of figure. Right. And this idea that he's fighting in the front ranks of his men, that he's sharing in the risks, that he's getting wounds, like he's got these battle scars. These are things which only enhance his, uh, his, his kingship. Definitely. Um, as it were. And as the battle progresses, it looks like so most of Antiochus's bodyguard have also lost their horses by this time they're fighting on foot but just that critical time the Seleucid the rest of the Seleucid cavalry are formed up the infantry come in to help as well now light infantry when light infantry are helping with cavalry on one side against another cavalry that is a great way to defeat an enemy cavalry force so the the Seleucids they all charge in and they force the Bactrians to retreat Euthydemos, by the time he gets there and he sees his faction cavalry, his elite corps in full retreat, he decides not to go for an all-out battle, and for the next year, two years, he stays in his capital at Bactra, under siege against Antiochus's army. Yeah, it's a it's a long period, and they both realize that the best route to you know to kind of moving on with this is to make some sort of agreement because obviously Antiochus would like to return back, make sure that he can solidify his other conquests and deal with things in Anatolia and other places. Euthydemus apparently during this time lost control of Sogdia um, and you know, has concerns that if this keeps going on for too much longer, these territories that that he has a hold on there might also, you know, end up being pulled away by nomadic tribes. 
Apparently, the one who negotiates on Euthydemus's side is his son, or at least, you know, kind of in the latter stages of the discussions, and that's Demetrius. You know, he comes and uh, interacts with Antiochus. He makes, and Polybius passes this along, he makes kind of an interesting argument. He's like, I'm no rebel. You know, Euthydemus <laughs> is no rebel. Uh, I, by the way, I killed Diodotus II. He was the rebel. I killed him. You know, you're welcome. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> and, and, uh, and another thing that's kind of interesting is apparently as part of the negotiations, you know, Euthydemus, maybe through Demetrius, kind of expresses, by the way, if we keep dragging this out, there are a bunch of Scythians on the northern borders that could be taking more Hellenic territory, kind of using the threat of looming barbarian invasions to say, let's speed this up, let's end the yeah. siege. And an, an agreement's made, and, and Antiochus, uh, you know, according to the uh, the reports, ends up marrying one of his daughters, an unnamed daughter, to Demetrius, Euthydemus's son, and and essentially allowing Euthydemus to use the title of king is is my understanding. Yep. No, exactly. I think Antiochus really wanted was some degree of. Um supplication from Euthydemus um, to basically so he can go back you know to Central Asia or wherever and say look, look I've, I've done what I set out to do you know Euthydemus he's, he's promised a degree of, of fealty to me only a limited degree kind of stuff like that and as you say he's got ambitions elsewhere I mean He's got his eyes by now. He's had enough time in the East. He wants to focus on the West, on the other things. He wants to focus on Thrace and Macedonia, which in the end ultimately ends in uh, Antiochus's uh, fateful downfall uh, to their new rising power in the Mediterranean bloc. You have Demetrius, who, as we just mentioned, had, had you know potentially just married one of Antiochus's daughters, and it's under Demetrius, who follows his father to the kingship, that we get the first recorded Bactrian invasions of India. And you know Demetrius, whether or not he knew it, and he, and he very well may have had good intelligence, but he picked about the perfect time for this mm -hmm. because the Mauryan Empire had just been overthrown uh, by an ambitious general named Shunga. And so you have, uh, you know, a power transition, you have a lot of kind of internal chaos in the region, and then in comes this Bactrian army led by Demetrius. And, and you know, once the Bactrians start penetrating and holding territories in India, that's when you start getting discussions of, of you know, what are conventionally known as the Indo-Greeks. And, and, and yeah, it must be noted that, um, obviously, Demetrius's army, when it goes to India, and of course, the evidence around this is, is, is very difficult. You said you're learning more about archaeology and records of it. It's basically a couple of lines in Strabo and, and a couple of lines in Indian texts um, talking about the Yavanas, the, uh, the, the Greeks. Um, but you also got to know that actually in the whole subcontinent of India at that time, you know, Indians would have fought, particularly the Buddhists uh, in the Indus Valley, would have fought for Demetrius, or would have joined his army against the Shungas, who were more, I believe they were Brahmins. And the, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, but a lot of Indians would have been in Demetrius's army in India. 
You're correct, and that, that's a really good point that I, that I yeah I hadn't really seized on. I I, I was aware that the Shunga Empire was uh, again returning to more Brahmanistic practices, but you're right that would have helped Demetrius's local recruiting quite a bit for his for his actions. And so again, around this time, you're mentioning the very sparse classical sources and the sparse sources literally of any kind. There's there's plenty of coinage showing plenty of kings kings that are very difficult to place in any kind of reasonable framework. You know, essentially it's a bit of a quote-unquote dark age just because the Bactrians and the Indo-Greeks weren't really engaging with literary sources in the West, with the Seleucids, with the Romans, with the whatever. So all this stuff happening in the East kind of went without written documentation and then suddenly around 165, you get this burst of light from the region, and it is the appearance of two other semi-legendary figures in, in retrospect, Mithridates I of Parthia and Eucratides of Bactria. So at the time in Bactria around 165, you had this uh, this ruler who was known as Demetrius II. You know, you don't know necessarily whether he was an heir or successor of Demetrius I, but we know that he was described as the king of the Indians, which meant that uh, aside from being a Bactrian king, he at least had substantial involvement uh, in India and in trying to conquer India and holding Indian territories, etc. And so Demetrius II was heavily involved in some sort of Indian campaign, and out of nowhere came this this gentleman named Eucratides. We know nothing about him. As far as we can tell, he's not related to either of the you know, ruling dynasties to date, the Euthydemids or the Deodotids. He must have chosen a very propitious time. He may have seized power in Bactra or in you know, what later Eucratidea, you know, closer to the Indian border. Wherever he took power, uh, immediately upon this, um, much of the surrounding territories immediately went into revolt. It's unclear whether he or Demetrius II or both of them are involved in suppressing the revolt. It may have actually been something both of them were involved in kind of separately. But eventually Demetrius came and besieged uh, Eucratides. So he was besieged for five months, and it says essentially he freed himself from the siege and then went on to conquer India, which to me implies Demetrius II either was forced to retreat to India or was killed in the conflict or something to that effect. So it's interesting because, again, you have this figure bursting onto the scene, and part of the reason he's bursting onto the scene is that at the same time, this figure named Mithridates I came on the scene as the, as the new king of Parthia. And Mithridates was, you know, destined to pretty quickly start making serious inroads into Seleucid territories. So when Mithridates starts conquering Media and then moving into Babylonia, then the you know the diarists and the uh, the ancient sources start taking note, and so they they tie his rise with the rise of uh, of Eucratides.
the two leaders ended up making some sort of agreement. And the proof of this is that both of them felt completely free after that to neglect their rear. <laughs> uh, Eucrates um, moved on, and similar to Demetrius II before him, he began focusing on trying to conquer more of India. Whereas Mithridates, that's when he felt free to start moving west again into Media Mesopotamia, directly confronting the Seleucids. Eucrates, since he wanted to focus on India, the understanding is that there was this city that he renamed Eucratidea, which was quite a ways east of Bactra and basically right on India's doorstep. <laughs> it it had been an important city for some time. Actually, we, we think the city was had actually been founded around 280, I think under Antiochus I. Eucratidea became this fairly major city by the time of, of Eucratides, certainly, but, you know, say over the 140 years between its foundation and the time of Eucratides. And I guess I wanted to go back a little bit to something you were talking about earlier, which was mm. the Greeks and Macedonians, they were looking at the time of Alexander and in his aftermath for any opportunity to get away from the region. Considering that, I wonder how difficult it was to recruit colonists, you know, for the Seleucids to say, hey, why don't you come and set up shop in this area, which is so radically different from what you know, and so far from your home? That, that's one thing that I'm kind of curious about. There's a, there's a couple of reasons it could have been done. I think over time, the Seleucids, especially under Antiochus I and Seleucus, they encouraged colonists to go east, to go Bactria, to settle there. They, you know, they talked about Bactria's positive sides they talked about the fertile lands the really fertile lands along the banks of the oxus the chances for opportunity were high there for a prosperous life um also the fact that you've got to think a lot of these colonists many of them may may have been stateless or they may have had a hard time with a current city-state or with a current government or democracy in that city or oligarchy and also there's quite a trend at this time in like the uh, 4th century and the 3rd century of powerful figures getting the undesirables of a city and putting them to a far-flung place in the empire where they can be expendable. Antipater and Philip II does this with undesirable Macedonian colonists, people like, you know, robbers, murderers, thieves, he, and, he, and he puts them in a frontier garrison in, well, a, a new city on his border in Thrace and it's possible that maybe Antiochus or Seleucus did something similar with some colonists that they didn't want in um, in in like more central parts of his empire like similar to the first British colonists in Australia it's, it's really interesting I, I yeah I hadn't thought about that yeah it, it might be a conscious desire on their part to as you say shift you know quote-unquote undesirables to a distant frontier region part of it may have been more compulsory Part of it, as you mentioned earlier, may have been the allure. Mm. But, but to me, another aspect, which I, I kind of covered in, in one of the recent podcasts, is from excavations performed at Iconum, one thing that we can tell is that the Seleucids tried as hard as they could to give settlers and colonists as many of the comforts of home as they possibly could. 
this had to do with you know large monumental construction, the the theaters, the gymnasiums, basically the only ones ever found east of Babylon. All these Greek architectural elements, all these things, you know, basically trying to say, if you do this hard journey, if you go to this new land, not only will it give you a chance for greater prosperity, but it will be familiar to you. We're going to give you some familiarity to try to lure them out that way. So. Mm. Of course, of course, one of the things that they can they never really know until they get there are the things that will make it obviously when it's too late, as it were, in a certain sense, is you know, like things like climate, climate, and stuff right. like that. That's <laughs> when they get there, and they realise, oh, hang on, this is uh, quite a few degrees hotter than what I'm used to. And <laughs> if I go outside of this, the Oxus River, there's just deadly wasteland. So I'm kind of now stuck here. Um, no, it probably probably wasn't in the brochure. You probably had to dig deeper uh, to find yeah. that information. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Eucrotides, uh, who we've been discussing, uh, on the way back from a failed Indian campaign against Menander, he gets killed by his son, uh, Heliocles, who basically just assassinates him, throws him on the roadside, no burial. With the death of Eucrotides, you really do get the first harbinger of the overall destruction of you know Hellenic Bactria. And it's not just because you've lost, you know, the very formidable warrior and and, and commander and someone able to defend the frontiers and put down rebellions, etc. But you have all these forces that are gathering on the horizon that it really is just a matter of time. You have... Mm. You have these large-scale nomadic migrations. Uh, it's kind of this long-term game where you know Han China pushes this large tribal confederation called the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu push against another one called the Yuexi. The Yuexi push on the Scythians, and it just becomes this cavalcade of nomadic tribes. You know, you, you start having things like Parthian kings and Bactrian kings falling in battle to uh, these Uexi and Scythian tribesmen. So pretty soon, they essentially abandon Bactria and kind of move into India, which has two interesting effects in, in my mind. One is essentially, by definition, you know, Hellenic Bactria or Greco-Bactria ends once the uh, Hellenic remnants kind of move into India. And also this presumably large population of Hellenic people who move from Bactria and India they kind of give the Indo-Greek kingdom a new life because there's a lot more manpower, there's a lot more soldiers, there's a lot of people, this this manpower and resources that the Indo-Greeks could really use, and and they all are forced to flee, you know, Greco-Bactria and go into India, which is why the Indo-Greek kingdom ends up lasting for, oh, the better part of, I want to say, you know, six, seven more decades. So it gives it kind of a, a boost. Eucrates was killed around 145 BC. There was an embassy sent from China uh, under a name, a man named Zhang Qian, uh, visited Bactria in 126. 
it, he found nothing recognizable to what we've been discussing as far as a highly organized, you know, militarily powerful kingdom. This is his report. He says, It has no great ruler, but only a number of petty chiefs ruling the various cities. The people are poor in their use of arms and afraid of battle, but they are clever at commerce. After the great Ueshi moved west and attacked Bactria, the entire country came under their sway. So essentially, you have uh, these Ueshi, these tribesmen who eventually form uh, the successor state, which is the, the Kushan Empire. And it seems like they purposely or you know dismantle whatever remnants of uh, of Seleucid authority or of Bactrian authority were there and basically just make the country uh, you know what what they want it to be, which is you know very passive and, a, and a, maybe an engine of agricultural growth. Mm. It's interesting hearing that actually because um, it was like an, an intermediate point. Of course, one of the main attractions of Bactria, is that it is right on the heart of the Silk Road. Right. So, actually, so I mean, merchants from the Mediterranean would have talked about Bactria, and word of Bactria would have got back to the Mediterranean, and also word from China. That's how, you know, the Romans get silk. You know, Imperial Rome, why silk becomes popular, because of the passing along of silk and stuff from China along the Silk Road gets to places like Bactra, where other merchants from the Mediterranean come in and then they start bringing it further around into the Mediterranean. It's remarkable. So that, that I started talking about like the contacts, as it were, and you were talking about the commercial side of things. And, and yes, one of the key reasons why Bactria is prosperous for so long, you know, since before the arrival of the Greeks and the Persians and stuff like that, and why there are so many prosperous cities there, was partly to do with the geography with the Oxus River and all that, but also because of its central situation on the Silk Road between East and West. It was a very interconnected world. We shouldn't think of, you know, the ancient world as just, you know, the Mediterranean and the, the Romans and the Greeks and the Parthians and all that. No, it was all connected with the, the, the Far East as well. It's um but yeah, that's another topic entirely. <laughs> no, no, it's it's very true. I I, I I fully agree with that. And and you are also very correct about the time frame too, because it was, you know, within ten, twenty years before this that Mithridates had taken the Caspian Gates, you know, essentially in Hyrcania from the Seleucids. And at the time, you know, it was a critical strategic pass to hold, but what it would become within a few short decades was a major major artery of the Silk Road. So you're you're right. This the the Chinese came here at a at a very transitional time, and and soon again you'd have uh, goods flowing through this region in you know in in enormous quantities, and and yeah, like you say, the communications between east and west would would grow stronger than ever.